do you really want members of Congress weighing in on local prosecutions where they are subject to the whims of their constituencies that might be different than the local constituencies that elected the district attorney. It's just a recipe for disaster and, in my opinion, unduly destroys that separation between the different branches in the executive function versus the judicial function. Congress's role is not to interpret or enforce the law. That's less left to executive bodies uh, such as DOJ, U.S. attorneys, and district attorney's offices on the state level. And then again, you have here layered on the separate sovereignty of a state prosecutor versus DOJ. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of All Things Investigations. I'm thrilled to have Kevin Carroll and Kenyon Brown back. And we are going to have a lot of fun today because we're going to ask these guys about the purported putative congressional investigation of the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg. So, gentlemen, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us on this topic. Thanks, Tom. It's always a pleasure. Pleasure to be here, Tom. Where should we begin? Or does it all start with Jim Jordan? (laughs) It often does. (laughs) Who wants to lead? It's a really interesting issue, and I'm glad you asked us to talk about it because it's a case of first impression. Congress has never before tried to use its subpoena power or investigative powers generally to get in the weeds of an ongoing investigation and now prosecution by a a state or local prosecutor. Kenyon? I just want to echo that this, if it comes out as a subpoena, it will be the first time in U.S. history for a congressional body to kind of try to put their nose under the tent of a local prosecutor into their deliberative process for an ongoing investigation. Typically what you see is Congress having the desire to get information from DOJ with respect to a past prosecutorial action. And DOJ and Congress typically go around in circles for a while to where the DOJ asserts different privileges and Congress asserts their broad investigative powers of oversight. And usually what happens is that there is a negotiated political resolution to the dispute. Very rarely has that gone to the courts and courts have historically been extremely reluctant to weigh in. But what we have here is layered on top of that the separate sovereignties doctrine where you have 
a state entity, a, a state executive branch agency executing their powers and Congress trying to call the Manhattan prosecutor before them to testify on an ongoing matter, not a past matter, but an ongoing criminal investigation and prosecution. This is unprecedented. And once you sit back and peel back the layers, I think there are generally problems with that. And I think if Congress, led by the Republicans, stops to think about it, that's probably a path they don't want to go down. Let me start with as big a picture question as I can. Is there any constitutional basis for the U.S. Congress to investigate an, a state prosecutor ongoing or past case? I think it's very thin. As Kenyon said, under our constitutional federalist system, the states have police powers that the federal government does not have. There's a whole raft of areas where a federal legislator might like to pass criminal statute about something, but doesn't have the authority to do so. It's an area that's really regulated by the states. The only thing that I'm hearing the Republicans might try to hang their request on is the fact that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office does receive a de minimis amount of grant money from the federal government. So if I had to argue on behalf of enforcing the subpoena, I would say, well, money's fungible. The DA Alvin Bragg is spending money on this investigation that's freed up by the money that the federal government gave him for whatever worthy program uh, the feds invested in with Manhattan DA's office. But I'm not sure that that dog will hunt because it's really a pretty far stretch. I think if you were investigating really specific illegal misuse of federal grant money given to the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's office, I think a federal judge might bite on that. But that's not what's being alleged here. Kenyon, do you see any sort of constitutional basis for even making the request? Well, I mean, courts have generally affirmed that Congress has broad authority to seek information within their legislative function, their oversight function, but there are limits to that. It has to legitimately be something within their legislative function. And as Kevin alluded to, the basis for it that's articulated in the letter that was sent from several committee chairs jointly to the DA, DA Bragg, cited their paper-thin excuse for legislative authority as the receipt of federal funds by the district attorney's office. Now, what I found curious about the letter is that the members of those, the chairs of those committees said, hey, you have received federal funds and you have a policy in your office of not going after other crimes. So we feel that this is politically motivated and politically charged. However, the very nature of their statement is arguably politically charged. Whether or not a prosecutor is a reformative prosecutor or one that's a more traditional crush the skull prosecutor, that's a political issue that the local people within that district elect their district attorney to act in that way. So that in itself, in my view, is a political statement kind of outside the purview of their supervision. Why should Congress decide how a local prosecutor spends his resources or what the policy is on a local level. So I just think that that excuse is paper thin. 
and if put to the courts, I think the courts would be reluctant to weigh in on that. And then they would just continue to go around in a series of letters and emails that are disparaging of each other, which really doesn't get you anywhere in terms of investigative process. Kenyon's exactly right. And in the specific case of Bragg, Bragg is a controversial prosecutor. I'm a conservative. I don't like his, his policies. And in New York, the governor has the authority to fire a public safety official, such as a district attorney or a, a police commissioner, or, or even the mayor. Franklin Roosevelt, for example, as governor, exercised that authority to get rid of a corrupt Manhattan district attorney. So in the 2022 gubernatorial election in New York, one of the key issues was Alvin Bragg. The Republican nominee, Lee Zeldin, said, if you put me in Albany, my first act on day one will be to fire Alvin Bragg. And the voters of New York State decided not to do that. To Kenyon's point, you know, like him or lump him, it's a policy choice by the people of the state of New York, and in this case, New York County, to have Alvin Bragg as, as their DA. Kenyon, let me pick up on something you alluded to much earlier in the podcast, which was lots of potential problems with this. Uh, maybe we could go through what you see as some of the problems, and let's ride that slippery slope all the way down. Well, first of all, you're kind of pulling back the veil of the deliberative process of the prosecutorial authority. And typically what you've seen on the federal level when a subpoena has gone to DOJ or a request for documents, it is post-conviction or post-investigation or post-prosecution. The instances where Congress has requested information about an ongoing investigation I think is limited to maybe four in history or less than that. And so the instances where that has come up on the federal level, there is usually some type of political negotiation to settle that. But kind of getting the nose under the tent of the discretionary opinions of a prosecutor during the course of an investigation could unduly reveal prosecutorial strategy. It could possibly immunize witnesses, such as we saw in the Iran-Contra situation, where the prosecutor's case was basically decimated against Oliver North and his compadre when they were called to testify before Congress. And so those are just a few of the uh, top-line items there, not to mention the chilling effect that could have on state and local authorities who could later fear being bullied by Congress on a national stage. And then more substantively, do you really want members of Congress weighing in on local prosecutions where they are subject to the whims of their constituencies that might be different than the local constituencies that elected the district attorney? It's just a recipe for disaster. And in my opinion, unduly destroys that separation between the different branches in the executive function versus the judicial function. Congress's role is not to interpret or enforce the law. That's less left to executive bodies uh, such as DOJ, U.S. attorneys, and district attorney's offices on the state level. And then again, you have here layered on the separate sovereignty of a state prosecutor versus DOJ. So I just think it 
opens Pandora's box of problems between the execution of different branches of government. It can absolutely mess up, I was going to use a stronger term, a meritorious criminal investigation. And I have some direct experience with this. So when I was working on Capitol Hill, I was senior counsel to the House Homeland Security Committee under uh, Pete King, and this was during the Obama administration. I won't say anything classified here, but I don't think much of this is, is public. There are a number of people, especially NYPD detectives, that were involved in the investigation of 9-11 who think that not all of the responsible parties have been arrested. And the FBI's position broadly is that that's not the case, but it's, it's a dispute. So we started a confidential congressional investigation into whether there were at-large 9-11 co-conspirators. And the way this was handled was the FBI saying to us as Congress, we have absolutely no responsibility to brief you about an ongoing criminal investigation. As a courtesy, we'll give you a general outline in a classified setting as to where we are on this. And we beg you not to do anything to mess up any potential future federal prosecution of 9-11 co-conspirators. And that was obviously not the, the chairman's intent to mess up any potential federal prosecution. So we, we took what the FBI said in a classified setting seriously and left it at that. But there's all sorts of ways that would have been politically interesting to go forward with that, but they likely would have had the effect of, if arrests are ever made, of making the job very difficult for a prosecutor to get a conviction. Just going to piggyback on that, both as longtime counsel for the Senate Ethics Committee and then Chief Counsel Staff Director of the House Ethics Committee, when we had a member who had allegedly done something wrong to the point of a criminal violation, and we received a letter from DOJ that they had a parallel investigation to that, hands down, every time there was no question, we kind of suspended our work into our investigation so as not to create double statements or to create immunity for someone appearing before us as a witness such that we did not trample over a DOJ investigation. So at least in that context, with respect to matters that are very clearly within the jurisdiction of those respective committees, we suspended investigations on every occasion when we were notified that there was a parallel criminal investigation that was ongoing. One of the reasons why Congress should know better than to do this is that prosecutors' offices, federal, state, local, receive false allegations about prominent people, especially politicians, all the time. When I was, a, again, a senior counsel to a congressional committee, we would regularly get people calling as whistleblowers with information. And some of the time, they were very patriotic public servants, you know, working the bureaucracy somewhere that properly brought information forward. Other times, they were loons who were making the wildest possible accusations. This was during, for example, the time of the Benghazi attack. And so, you know, I handled lots of calls from people saying that all sorts of senior federal government officials were secretly Muslims working in cahoots with Al-Qaeda and all sorts of like nonsense. And, you know, so you just put that kind of information in the, the proverbial round file. But, you know, if people start giving congressional subpoenas, if you uh, asked me under oath if I had ever heard an allegation that a famous senior Democratic government official had engaged in a certain kind of misconduct, well, I have. 
there was nothing to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it just, it remains where it belongs within the confidences of that committee, or in this case, a prosecutor's office. And you could just see all sorts of potential for people to be slimed by the revelation under oath of the fact that accusations have been made against politicians, including Republican politicians, that turn out to be false. Let me play a uh, slippery slope a little bit because my almost immediate concern after Jordan sent the letter was, are they going to go after the grand jury? And I've studied grand juries through English history up into America, and, and it's one of the greatest inventions, developments, whatever in the law, literally starting in, in England in the 1200s coming forward. But it is as sacrosanct as any other institution in law. And could their next step be to try to pierce the veil of the grand jury? Part of the justification for oversight is, quote unquote, wrongdoing with respect to, in this case, it would be federal funds that have, in smaller fashion, gone to the district attorney's office. And they would have to be a direct allegation of wrongdoing or mismanagement of official funds that went to them. Again, you know, and that's part of why I think the rationale here is paper thin. But to use that, if I can call it a crack of an opening, to try to go after grand jury material, which by statute is criminalized to disclose that, I think that would be not one bridge too far, but probably five bridges too far for the committees to try to go after. And I don't think, just my personal opinion, I, I don't think such a aggressive tactic would be stomached by any court to try to go after grand jury material. Because what Kevin alluded to in terms of rumor and just the privacy of individuals, that would completely explode the basic nature of our criminal justice system which is the grand jury. So I would be surprised if there was a gambit to try to get it, but I personally think that would be extremely unsuccessful and very, very unpopular. You talk about unprecedented. To give you an example of how sacrosanct grand jury material is, I was a, a military intelligence officer and then a CIA case officer working first counterterrorism and then counterintelligence matters, and I couldn't get my hands on grand jury material that counterterrorism and counterintelligence investigations. I just had to rely on FBI agents that had read it, that they knew what was in there, but I wasn't allowed to see it myself. And specific to New York, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker at a Manhattanite. The Manhattan district attorney's policy in certain matters is to always present the case to a grand jury, to let the grand jury decide. For example, every police-involved shooting that results in a death in New York County, even if it's clearly a good shoot, as they say, is presented to a grand jury so that a grand jury decides whether or not the police acted lawfully. Most often they have, you know, and the, the grand jury returns a no true bill. As there is that kind of policy, you could imagine the kind of material that would come before a grand jury. It's just not in anybody's best interest to come out. Well, Gillibut, perhaps we could end with a couple of different questions. Number one, how would you advise Alvin Bragg and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to handle this request and these issues? And two, how do you see this playing out? So I'll go first there. And, and I think he has responded 
just as he should have, I've read his responses to the subpoenas. He cites to the relevant law in that regard. And basically he says, hey guys, you know, I, I appreciate your, your letter, but I got this. This is my area of operation, my area of authority, and I am not going to comply with your request. And so I think he's playing this just right. Again, I'm not necessarily talking about the merit of the indictment or not. That's a whole different conversation. But in terms of Congress's attempt to put their nose under his tent, I think he's playing that just right. I think on this, the Republicans will think really long and hard about whether or not they send a subpoena. If I were them, I wouldn't send a subpoena, but I would just continue to send Molotov cocktails over through the media and criticize him for that. Therefore, you're not sending any precedent, and I think you're probably achieving your goals with a certain segment of society by continuing to throw grenades at him in the media. Alvin Bragg, if he does receive a subpoena, you would take that to the courts and challenge that as improper. And just sitting here as an outside observer and somewhat of an awareness of these rules and laws and constitutional precedent, I think he would win in fighting that. So that would be my advice, perhaps, or thoughts about how this would play out if this were really to kind of go to the mattresses, as they say. I'll say a phrase I've never used before. I agree with Alvin Bragg and think he's acting properly. <laughs> In this case, he is. If I were him, I would tell Congress to pound sand. And to Kenyon's point, I think a lot of this is public theater. It wouldn't surprise me if that committee votes out a subpoena and it gets defeated in the courts and Jim Jordan is able to say to the extreme right that he tried his best and everything to get to the bottom of this, but the darn deep state just wouldn't let him. You know, one thing I think is it Bragg's favor is that the Manhattan DA's office is a really first-class operation. I mean, my, the brightest of my law school classmates, Fordham Law School, you know, went to the Manhattan DA's office because it offers really unique opportunities for people to get trial experience on sophisticated cases, including sophisticated financial cases, pretty early in their careers. The Manhattan DA is experienced arguing before the Supreme Court. They argued a bunch of state subpoena issues before the Supreme Court related to former President Trump in their investigation of his finances. So they'll be able to throw some first-class legal talent at moving to quash the subpoena if Congress does issue well, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating exploration on a case or a, a matter really in today's headlines. I wanted to thank you both again for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope I can uh, perhaps call upon you again as this further unfolds. Something tells me there's going to be some interesting news in the coming weeks and months in this area, so we're standing by. <laughs> <laughs>